We have been looking for weeks at a, at a topic called Crazy Love, uh, built originally off of a, a little book that was written, and we've had a great time doing that. If you have your Bible today, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, since we're going to talk about Christmas over the next few weeks, I thought we should start at the beginning of Christmas. And you're thinking, uh, Genesis? Are you kidding me? Actually, I'm not. That's what we're going to talk about. Genesis <clears throat> chapter 15. We're talking about faithful love. Anybody know what these are? Well, what is this? It's not rhetorical. It's a leaf. Does anybody know what kind of a tree it is? A big tree. Thank you. Those are big leaves, aren't they? It's a fig, fig tree? I have no idea. It's in my neighbor's yard. I have about a billion of these in my backyard. <clears throat> and in my lawsuit, I needed to... Uh... No, not really. I, I wouldn't do that. <clears throat> And I just got to thinking, I was out raking some leaves yesterday, and, and uh, I didn't get to the backyard, <clears throat> but I got to the front yard, and as I was raking the leaves, I got to, to thinking about something, a leaf. You know, you, you can see it, if you were up here close, you could see the veins that run up the back of the leaf. A, a fresh leaf, this, is, this one was soaking wet this morning when I got it, so it's still very pliable, even though it's been on the ground probably for a few days. Knowing me with leaves on the ground, it may have been there more than that. But it's very pliable. If you let this dry out, what happens? It becomes brittle, and, and if you put a match to it, what happens with the leaves? It's like the best kindling you've ever had. Man, they're just gone in a second. And yet I've seen these leaves, these big, huge leaves. When we had that wind several weeks ago, you know, that, that huge wind that came through and, and it was taking down whole limbs and stuff, these leaves still stuck to that tree. There are some leaves that will stick to a tree even in hurricane force winds. What do the leaves do for us? Who cares about leaves? I mean, about the only time I think about a leaf is when I look out the window and I see that the leaves are all over the ground and I have to rake them, right? Who cares about a leaf? Well, the leaf takes the poison, the carbon dioxide, out of the air and it, and it takes it and filters it and it gives back to us oxygen. What does the leaf do? Well, without the leaf, if this is a fig leaf, and those of you who know a lot more about trees than I do say that it's a fig leaf, if that is a fig leaf, how did they have the figs without the leaves? You need that because the chlorophyll and the, the nutrients and everything that's keeping the tree alive. And so we know that a leaf is important. And, and the reason that I would never sue my neighbor is that this tree keeps our backyard in wonderful shade, especially the back part of our backyard. It has wonderful shade because of this. The other thing that I think is interesting about the trees, at least in, in many of the trees in my backyard and the leaves, is they're phototropic. It means that they are drawn to the sun. And so if you look at them, you know, I think it's always interesting. People have the artificial trees and they're looking for the most realistic artificial tree for Christmas. You know, you see all these trees. These are all real trees. None of these are artificial. Well, they're real plastic. I mean, they are real something. Uh, but everybody's looking for a real-looking artificial tree, but if you had a real tree, then they're always more full on one side than the other because they're phototropic too, and they grow toward the sun. So they fill out more on the side that has the sun, and they fill in less on the side that's in the shade. And there's, it's really hard to take a tree out of the ground and rotate it around, but if you'll notice some of the plants that you have in your house, if you don't turn them from time to time, they start growing toward the window. That's called phototropism. They, they grow that way. Leaves are kind of amazing. The funny thing is, I've never started a prayer out with, Lord, thank you for the leaf. 
I've never said, God, thank you for being so faithful that you would create this marvel of, of creation that would include a leaf that would give us shade and would provide oxygen and provide fruit and, and food for us. Lord, I, I've never thanked him for a leaf. Why? Because God is faithful, and in his faithfulness, sometimes we forget. In his faithfulness, it becomes boring. Sometimes when we talk about, oh, I had that faithful old car, what do you really mean? You mean I couldn't afford the payment for a new one, so I kept driving this old one. Sometimes when you talk about faithful, it becomes kind of obscure or predictable or routine. In fact, that's what faithfulness means. It is routine. It is, it, it is boring in some ways to us. But every day God provides for us air and water and food and shelter and sleep and, and the health that we enjoy, the, the laughter that we get to have. God provides all that. He is faithful in His love. And when we're talking about crazy love, we need to go back and look at that again. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it's a, it's a verse that we, we go to a lot because we sing this song. It says, because of the Lord's great love. I, you know what? You could almost say, because of the Lord's crazy love. We are not consumed. Like a leaf that gets dried, that, that gets burned up in the fire. Because of His crazy love, we're not like a leaf that's dried up and shriveled up and, and blown away or, or destroyed in the fire. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah wrote this at a time when Israel thought that God had forgotten them. Jeremiah wrote that at a time when, when he thought that Israel maybe was no longer part of God's plan. And the Lord says, don't you understand I am still faithful to you. Sometimes, out of the regularity of what we do, we, we need new eyes. We need a new look at something. How many of you ever look in a mirror? Raise your hand. You, you've, you've ever looked in a mirror? Now, wait a second. Did you comb your hair today? Did you do that without looking in a mirror? Okay, some of you could do Some of us could do that. I understand that. Did you shave? Did, did you not look in a mirror? Some of you, the way you're dressed, maybe you didn't. But most of us look in a mirror. And you should look in a mirror. How many have ever looked at yourself in a mirror? Raise your hand again. I want to see it. Okay. How many of you have seen yourself in a photo, even though you see yourself in a mirror every day, and when you see yourself in a photo, you go, oh, no. Did I really look like that? Who's the guy with the gray hair? Where did those wrinkles come from? Do I really look like that? Wow. And you go throw some clothes away. And you go get on a diet plan. Or you go get that new color hair that you put, get it in a box and you put it in your, in your hair. The Lord says, I want to give you a fresh look. Because you've looked at yourself every day in the mirror for so long that you don't really understand how I view you. And also we need to look at the Lord again. Because sometimes we get so used to the way the Lord looks, we need a fresh look. And he says, I want to give you a photo, a snapshot. I want you to see me again with fresh eyes. A fresh look at God's faithful love will rekindle our love for the Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 15, and, and I hope this will give you a fresh look. Why should I appreciate? That's the, if you have your outline, it's, there's one in the bulletin. It says, why should I appreciate God's faithful love? Genesis 15, kind of a strange passage. And we're going to start in verse 3. It says, and Abram said, this is before Abram has changed his name, so it's just the abbreviated version. And Abram said, you've given me no children. He's speaking to the Lord. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man, this servant will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Now look at verse 6. This verse, Genesis 15, 6, is quoted at least four times in the New Testament. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He counted it as righteousness. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Abraham had the same problem we did. He's been promised a son. He's been promised a land. He's been promised to be a great nation. And he keeps saying, Lord, how can I know this? Look at verse 9. So the Lord said to him, he's he's going to give him a new snapshot. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him. Cut them in two and arrange the halves opposite each other. I I need to stop here for just a second. Do you understand what that just means? He said, a heifer. What's a heifer for us city folk? It's a cow, okay? It's a three-year-old cow. And I know it's a heifer, but it's, it's, it's a cow. A goat and a ram. So you have three animals. Would there be any blood involved in splitting them down the middle? I mean, this would be gory, horrible thing. I mean, it would be rated R for gore and violence, okay, if you were making this to a movie. And and God said, split them down the middle and lay one half on this side and one half on this side. And when you do that, the blood's going to be in the middle. When you slit the, the animal's throat, there's going to be blood everywhere. But if you split it, even if you have tried to drain the blood from it, there's going to be blood all over the place. And so there's going to be this bloody trail through these three animals. And that's what he says. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Verse 10. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. You said, How can I know? Here's how you can know. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Did that happen to Israel, by the way? Yeah, it's called the, the Egyptian, the, the time in Egypt, uh, the Egyptian slavery. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has, has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is a bizarre scene. And you say, Pastor, how can this relate to Christmas? Hang in there and we'll see, okay? Why should I appreciate God's faithful love? Three things. Number one, God is faithful to keep all his promises. God has promised to Abraham, you are going to have a son. And at the time that he promises, Abraham's already 75 years old. His wife is 65 there. I mean, even in their time, that's just beyond medically anything that could happen. And this is 10 years later. We know that because uh, Abraham, in the next chapter, in in Genesis 16, says that uh, Ishmael was born. After this, when God says, it's not going to be one of your servants, it's going to be someone from your own body, Sarah gives up. After 10 years of waiting for this baby, she says to Abraham, why don't you take my slave girl, sleep with her, and you can have a son. It'll be at least be from your own body. God said I was going to be the mother, but obviously I'm 75, you're 85, this isn't going to happen. He sleeps with a slave girl and, and Ishmael is born. 
So they've been waiting 10 years. Have you ever waited on God's promise? Has there ever been some time that God has promised you something and you've had to wait on it? I, I, I think that's true. But Abram didn't have the information we have. Israel, uh, Isaiah 29, 14, Israel is really struggling. And in the message it says that God performed wonder after wonder after wonder. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as we understand slowness. Are we slow keeping our promises? I love to watch HGTV. I love to watch HGTV because I know that they do everything in 30 minutes that it really takes you years to accomplish. It is the most unrealistic depiction of what, what you can do around your house. They always do these tiling projects and finish them in 28 and a half minutes. I think that's ridiculous. I, you know, it takes weeks. But one of my favorites is DIY Disaster. There's a guy by the name of Brian, and he gets called in when people have, have done these things. There was one a, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote the, the names down, Frank and Andrea. They'd been living with her in-law, uh, with, with his parents, her in-laws, for over a year. And all he had to do was finish the kitchen for over a year. You know how much he'd gotten done in the kitchen? Nothing. He had taken the cabinets out, he'd turned the water off, he had you know, destroyed some of the electrical, but he'd not even gotten the sheetrock off of the walls, he was going to go all the way down to the studs, and he didn't even have that done. After a year of living with the in-laws, and she called Brian and she said, either fix the kitchen or I'm going to kill him. And literally, that's what she said. She said, I cannot live like this anymore. There was another one. Four years, the guy was trying to do a laundry room. He did one sheet of sheetrock a year for four years. And it was terrible. I mean, it's ridiculous. Do we keep our promises? You say, yeah. The Bible repeatedly says that God's timing is perfect. Israel is told they're going to have to wait 400 years under this slavery. Israel is told that there are going to be some other times. And, and Jeremiah is going to write, at the time of captivity, that his compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. In the very beginning of John, Jesus is, is at this wedding and his mother comes and, he, and she says, Jesus, it's time. And he says in, in John 2, 4, my time has not yet come. He does the miracle, but, but he wants her to understand that God has a timetable. God has a timetable for us. God is faithful to keep all of his promises, but it, sometimes it's a long wait. God always delivers. Fifteen years after this happened in Genesis 15, fifteen years later, God revisits Abraham, or fourteen years later, and he says, next year at this time, you'll have that baby. And Abram is, at that point, he's 99 years old. His wife is 89, and she says, there's no way. She laughs. And God says, when you have the baby, name him Laughter. So that every time you call his name, you're going to be reminded that you laughed at God, and God keeps his promises. God is faithful. We should appreciate that. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Does God keep his promises? Is God going to come take us home? Could it be between now and Christmas? It could. And we don't believe that. We don't live like that. Appreciate God's faithfulness. He has a timetable. It's perfect. Number two, God is faithful to his character. We, we see not only does he keep his promises. And Oh, by the way, go, go back. I'm sorry. Lisa, can you go back? Have I messed you up? Look at the verse here. You need to see this. Hebrews 6.15. I love this. And so after waiting patiently. Did Abraham wait patiently? He laughed. 
He, he tried to have his own son his own way. Did he wait patiently? But in the end, God saw that. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. God keeps his promises. Number two, God is faithful to his character. Have you ever heard the phrase, to thine own self be true? Be true to yourself? We think that that's all about integrity. And God is true to himself. Here's the problem. If we're true to ourself, what does that mean? If we're really true to who we are, the nature of who we are, what does that mean? It's not a good thing. Was Hitler true to himself, to his character? Yes, he was. Hitler was an evil man. There are evil men today who are true to their character, true to the nature, that old nature, that sin nature that's in there. We are true to ourselves. And I've got news for you. You see that every day. I, we were out shopping, and th- these people came by in this cart, and they had a little dog. I felt so sorry for this little dog. It had a little pink frock on. And they're holding this dog, and it's got, I mean, it looked like a pink tutu. And I felt sorry for this dog. And I, he, she, I, you couldn't tell because of, you know, the way that the thing was clothed in this cloth, looked up at me like, help. <laughs> I got news for you. No dog wants to be in a pink tutu. There, that's, that's against its nature. It's a dog, okay? Uh, Kathy makes fun of me. I, I mean, we have this dog with short hair and, and kind of a little dog. And she said, well, maybe we should. I found the perfect outfit the other day, and Kathy would not let me buy it. It's camo. I mean, it's camouflage. And it has skull and crossbones on the back. She would not let me buy that for a buddy, for our dog. No, they, they want something frilly and fru, you know, frou-frou. We're not doing that for the dog. It, it's against their nature. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. You know, it just annoys the pig. Don't do that. It's against the nature. And God says, do you understand my nature? Do you understand the character of who I am? It doesn't violate my character because I'm never going to lie to you. And that's what he says to Abraham. He said, did I promise you this? And Abraham says, yes, but how can I know? And the Lord says, don't you know who I am? I will give you a demonstration of it, but don't you understand who I am for you? We need to ask the Lord sometimes to search our nature because we think we're being true to the Lord and we're really, we're being true to that old nature. David in Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Jeremiah, the same one who wrote in Lamentations, in Jeremiah 17:10, he's delivering this message to Israel, and it's what the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. We need to be true to God's character. In Hebrews 6, we've already referred to it in verses 13 and 16, it's looking back at this passage in Genesis, and it says that God could not find anyone else. Since God had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. He, he couldn't swear by anyone else because there's no one greater. His character is perfect. It's, it's flawless. When we were kids, and I know my parents didn't like this, but if we were talking to each other and we weren't sure that we were telling the truth, not, not that brothers would ever lie to brothers, but you know, and sometimes in our family, you know what we would say? I swear on a stack of Bibles. Because we knew my father was a pastor. And if you lied and you swore in a stack of Bibles, you were in huge trouble. And, and God says, there's no one greater to swear by. I swear by myself. And what does he do? He says to Abram, I want to give you this demonstration. And it's a bizarre illustration. And he, and he has the animals slaughtered and, and split. And, and they're, they're walking between the animals except that Abram... He, he fends off the birds, but then he falls into a sleep, and there's a, this agreement. And you need to understand the Old Testament context. In the Old Testament, 
If you were really serious, there was no greater way to, to, to make a compact, to make a, an, an agreement, to make a treaty with someone than to do this. You would take an animal, you would split the animal, and you would open it up, and you would walk between the animal. Both of you would walk through together, side by side. You split it wide enough that both of you could walk side by side through the animal. What were you saying? If I do not keep my word, if I'm not good to my char- true to my character, if I'm not faithful to you, I want you to do to me what just happened to that animal. I want you to split me in two. That's what God was saying. And he didn't just say one. He said, I want you to take the three sacrifices that later would be given in the Old Testament law as the ultimate sacrifices, the heifer and the, and the goat and the ram. He says, I want you to take all three of those and I want you to split them down the middle and I want you to, to spread them out. But Abraham fell asleep. Why did, why did God allow him to do that? And why didn't God wake him up? Because the Old Testament agreement was both of you walked through and both of you had to keep the, the, the treaty. But God knew that Abraham was not going to keep the treaty. He knew he would not keep that covenant. He knew he would not keep his promise to be faithful to the Lord. And so the Lord says, this is not on Abraham. This is on me. And the sacrifices were split. And God sees Abraham asleep. And he says, I promise that if my covenant with Abraham is not kept, you can do to me what's been done to these animals. And the covenant was not kept by Israel. And the covenant was not kept by us. And so one day, God said, I need to send another sacrifice, a baby in a manger who grew up, and 33 years later, God didn't split him down the middle. He just spread his arms out on a cross with blood everywhere, flowing from his side, blood flowing from his head, blood flowing from the hands that are nailed to the cross and the feet, and blood flowing down. And he says, come to the cross because I have done to myself what was needed because the covenant was not kept. Do you get the majesty of this? And Abram believed God. How are people in the Old Testament saved? The same as in the New Testament, by faith in God's promises, by faith and trust in God's character. God depended on his true character to be the sacrifice for us. And James 1.17 says this, every good and perfect gift. Got news for you, you never have to return God's gifts. Anybody here enjoy after Christmas going to return those gifts? Isn't that fun? Isn't that nice? Do you have the receipt? Do you have a gift receipt? You know, you know, we'll give you 33 cents on the dollar if you don't. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And look at that last line, who does not change like shifting shadows. God says, I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I'm always going to be the same. And the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. God is faithful to his character. The last one is God is faithful to love us completely. Abraham is whining. Abraham is whining to God. In verse 2 it says, uh, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? He thought his spiritual gift was complaining. He thought his spiritual gift was whining. I got news for you. That is not a spiritual gift, and it's specifically not your spiritual gift. If you're whining to God, of all the people who lived at that time, God chose Abraham. 
He chose this one and he said, follow me. He didn't tell him where he was going and he, and he took him out of Ur Chaldees, it says, and he, and he says, I'm going to make you a great, a, a great man with a great family and a great land and, and, and the nation, the whole business. Jeremiah 31.3 says it this way. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. Again, the same one who wrote Lamentations is writing and he says, do you understand? God said my love started before creation, before Genesis 1, and it goes through Calvary and it goes to today in Redding, California. My love is an everlasting love for you. I will keep my promises. I will be true to my character and I will love you in ways that you cannot imagine. I can't imagine standing there when those animals are split and blood everywhere and Abraham had to have blood all over his hands and probably all over his clothes and he's thinking, God, what in the world are you doing here today? What in the world are you thinking here today? And it's just like the disciples, the 11 disciples, Judas is out of the picture and then Peter denies the Lord and so there's 10 and they all run from Calvary and John shows up just long enough for Jesus to say, look, John, here's my mother, take care of my mother for me. And and John and Jesus' mother Mary, they're ushered off the scene, but for the rest of the people, they're looking at Jesus, the one who said he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who came in the triumphal entry, hanging up on a cross. How could you show any more love than that? Jesus is faithful to love us completely. Wow. That's powerful. How or why should I appreciate God's faithfulness? Because he's done so much to, to prove it to us. But let's look at the second part. Go over to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. I want to look at the second part. How can I appropriate it? You know, it's one thing to appreciate something. It's another thing to, to put it into your basket. It's one thing to go through the aisle and see a toy, a a gift, and appreciate, oh, that's a really neat thing. It's another thing to put it in your basket and take it home. How can I appropriate it for myself? Genesis chapter 20, verse 11, Abraham replied, I said to myself, oh, I need to stop here for just a second, because this is obviously much later. Abraham's had this huge promise. He wakes up. God tells him, I am the smoking pot. I am the the torch of fire that's walked through. I've made this, this promise for you, and it's not a bilateral promise. It's a unilateral it's not both of us are in agreement i'm the one who's made the promise to you and so what does abraham do he's already lied once before about who sarah is because he's afraid he's afraid that somebody's going to see this 90 year old woman and say "Woo, that's a good looking chick i'd like to have her for my wife that's what abraham believes that's faith okay or really bad eyesight they didn't have glasses so you know that may be what it was but he says, this, this woman is so beautiful, I, I'm going to lie about her. And he does it once before. God rebukes him. And so after this, this whole thing in Genesis 15, look at what it says. Abraham does the same thing. Abraham said, replied, verse 11, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife, because she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. There is, and again, if you look in in all of that, does he mean father, father? No, probably not. She was a cousin is probably what it was. He's fudging even on that. He's not even telling the truth here. And she became my wife. Verse 13, and when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Here's how you can show your love, lie, is what he says. 
Then Abimelech, the guy that Abraham has lied to, brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother, I love that, not your husband, I'm giving your brother, a little sarcasm there, a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham believed, uh, prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now you need to get this, the full picture here. Abraham lies to Abimelech. Abimelech says, I want this woman as my wife. He takes her. This happened a lot in the, in the Old Testament times. It was a way of securing a, a nation or, or a status in the area to take multiple wives. And he took this woman that he thought was not married. And God judged him and closed up all of the women's wombs so that they couldn't have children. And obviously this has gone on for some time. Look at verse 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Uh, chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. Did you get that? At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave this name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And Isaac means laughter. How can I appropriate God's faithful love? Number one, God faithfully restores me. Accept it. God faithfully longs to, to restore us, to, to bring us back to what he originally designed us to be. But we have to accept it. Abraham came up with his own plan. He never said, he never prayed, hey, Lord, I'm going to go to Abimelech's land and, and, and I know this, this, this custom and I, and I want you to protect Sarah. He never asked the Lord to do that. He never accepted that God might have a plan that was better than his. Do you have any acceptance of God's plan? Have you ever come to God and said, okay, God, whatever your plan is for my, my life, I will accept that? You, you see, it's easy to judge Abraham, and yet we do the same thing. Well, well God, I, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. The problem is, is we don't want his plan a lot of times. We have our own plan. And God says, do you not understand? You need my plan. You have to accept it. What's interesting is Abraham also taught his son to do this because in Genesis 26, Isaac pulls the same stunt. And Genesis 26 says that there was a famine in the land. That's why they left where God had brought them. They were not depending on God even for their food and for their income. They, they left that and they went somewhere else. Isaac repeats the same stunt that his father had done. Do we ask God for help? Why don't we do that? Well, we believe we're damaged goods. We think that we're so imperfect. We know who we are. I, I mean, it's one thing to get decked out for Christmas, to, to get dressed up and, and to come to church and, and to look pretty good, but you know who you are. You know what you're like during the week. I guess I grew up with a lot of the Christmas stories. Uh, one of my favorite was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the 1964, I don't know if it was claymation or just really, really bad cartoons, but you remember the Rudolph the Red-Nosed, Burl Ives narrated this thing, do you remember that? I think he was Frosty the Snowman, I haven't seen it in years, it's probably still out there. But Frost, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rudolph and uh, there was a Hermie the Elf, and they did not fit in with anybody else. Rudolph, obviously, because he had this huge red nose that shined in the dark. 
And so they went to the island of misfit toys. Do you remember the whole story? I mean, this is a bizarre. They took one little song and made this whole story out of it. The island of misfit toys, instead of a jack-in-the-box, there was a Charlie in the box. I mean, instead of a train that had round wheels, there was a square wheels on the train. And uh, let's see what was... Oh, there was the boat that did not float. You know, that, that's not a real good toy. You give them a boat and it sinks, okay? We now call that a submarine. But anyway, that's the, that was a misfit toy. And Rudolph was with all of these misfits. And, of course, Rudolph comes back and is on a foggy night and guides the sleigh. God says, you're not a misfit. I designed you the way you are. And I want to restore you and your plan and your purpose in life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says it this way. May God himself, God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, cleanse you, purify you, restore you, sanctify you through and through. And look at what it says in the next verse. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. But you have to accept it. God offers to restore us. We have the problem. We've been marred by sin. We've been marred by all the bad things we've done, and God offers to restore us. There was some time ago that we had a, a computer problem, and it was one of those Microsoft problems, and we knew it was, and it came up with all these error messages, and I got on the phone with Microsoft, and I waited about an, an hour and a half to talk to Microsoft, and finally got through to somebody who, who actually spoke without an Indian or Pakistani uh, you know, dialect or, or uh, a little bit of being able to understand them. And he said, uh, this is what I want to do for you, Mr. Knight. And he, and he said, type in this. And I typed in exactly what we told, he told me. And he said, now do this and now do that. And he says, now get your hand off the mouse. And I said, why? He says, you just gave me remote access to your computer. I said, okay. This is good, I think. And all of a sudden, screen after screen flashed up. And he, he began to do these, these things from wherever he was in India or Pakistan or wherever he was. And I, and I finally had somebody that seemed to know what he was doing. And, and he began to correct this and he began to diagnose this and he began to, to re, reconfigure this. And, and he restored this and he restored that and he fixed the computer. And the number one thing that I had to do was don't touch the mouse. The Lord says, would you give me remote access except he's not in India or Pakistan the Lord says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And it says that if you accept Jesus Christ into your life, he comes to dwell within you, but he still wants you to open the door. He wants you to give him remote access to your life. God faithfully, faithfully restores me, accept it. Number two, God faithfully forgives confessed sin. Confess it. Confess it. Why did Abraham need to, to pray for Abimelech to be restored? You see, we have these things, these things that we've done wrong, and, and we hate to use the word sin, but that's what it is. Any rebellion against God, anytime we've said, God, I don't want to do what you want me to do, that's called sin. And God wants him to admit his lack of trust in God's care, his ability to take care of it. We know 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We have unconfessed sin, we need to confess it. Why don't we confess it? Sometimes I think it's because we're so busy trying to pray what we think others want us to pray or what we need to pray or we think we need to pray. We pray for our missionaries and we need to pray for them. That's a great thing to pray. We pray for world hunger we, or, or global hunger, for world peace. We, we pray for all those things. Those are great things. But God wants us to open our heart. He wants that remote access and he wants us to admit where we are. 
Shel Silverstein said that he heard a, a kid praying, and, and he revamped their prayer just a little bit. He calls it the prayer of a selfish child. It goes this way, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of those other kids can ever use them. Amen. That's a prayer of a selfish child. You know, I read that and I laughed. I did the same thing. I chuckled. But you know what? It, it dawned on me. God would rather have us have a selfish heart that's revealed to him than a hidden heart that we won't give him access to. I mean, that's really an honest prayer of a child. And the truth is, for a lot of us, if we prayed just as honestly as that child, we would reveal our heart to the Lord and the Lord would be able to do what he needs to do. Kids come to parents all the time with, with unrealistic expectations. I mean, just think about what your kids have given you as a Christmas list. It, you know, we, uh, uh, I was one of six kids, and they couldn't begin to figure it out. And they would say, you know, here's the Sears catalog. Give us a wish list. And we would put all these things in huge things, knowing that what we were going to get is a new suit or a new, uh, new, new clothes that you could wear on Sunday and then maybe one toy. But we would list off sometimes eight or ten toys, and we had these huge wish lists that we gave to the Lord. And, and our parents just wanted to know where our hearts were, I think. We went to, to visit our, our kids. I've said that before last week. We talked a little bit about that. And we, we saw our daughter, Elizabeth, and her husband, Sam, in, in Austin, Texas. And they have a five-year-old. He's, he's, he's a brilliant little boy. I, I think he's just probably the smartest little kid that's ever lived. Not that I'm prejudiced at all. Nico is his name, Nicholas. And Nicholas is, is a great little kid, and, and she, my daughter was relating to me that there was a time when Nicholas, he's so enthralled with all the superheroes, and, and he found a cape, and he made a cape for himself, and he put it around his neck. And they have a little window ledge in his, in his bedroom, and it's just maybe a foot and a half off of the ground. It's a very low window ledge. And he crawled up in the window ledge, and he said, Mom, Dad, watch, I'm going to fly. And he, he struck the post. You've got to get one arm out, you know, and the other arm kind of half cocked. And he was, he's standing there on that ledge balancing. And she said, you just saw this look of determination on his face. And he leapt out into the room. And he went about, oh, about that far, you know, a couple feet. And he landed. And his dad said, Nico, great job. And his mom said, Nico, that was so good. And he hung his head and he put his hands in his pocket and she said, what, Nicholas? He said, I thought I was going to fly. I thought I was going to go all over around the house. I thought I could go over the balcony into the living room and fly. He says, I had the cape. I thought I could do it. And she, she said, it dawned on me. Before he opened the window, since it's on a second floor, she needed to, to tell him some truth, and that is that little boys, even with capes, can't fly. Because he would be the kind of kid that would open the second story window and try to fly out. Maybe it was because he was inside. And you say, that's a foolish little story about a little boy. Is it? Don't we do the same thing? We think that we should be able to fly and we come to the Lord and the Lord says, would you just open your heart? Would you tell me those wishes that you have? Those things that are in your heart? God faithfully forgives, confess sin, confess it. Here's the third thing. God faithfully brings us home. Live like it. God faithfully brings us home. John 14, 3, I have already referenced this before. He says, listen, I'm going to go and prepare. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. If I go and prepare a place, don't you think I'm going to come back? God is faithful 
And he says, I will come back. He'll bring us home. This last summer, we went to Yellowstone. We went to, to visit Yellowstone National Park. Incredible park. And there's so many things about it that I like. And I have to admit, Old Faithful is something I'd never seen. I'd always seen pictures of it. And, and I loved Old Faithful. And, and you get there, and they have this big clock. They have this big thing. In so many minutes, Old Faithful is supposed to spout off, you know, and all this, this steam in the water, and it comes flying out of the geyser. And it, it's a fascinating thing. You know what struck me, though? I noticed that all of the tourists are there, and it's right outside this big place where they have all kinds of eating places, and there's a lobby, and there's a, there's a hotel, I think, there, and a lodge, and, and all of these people are there. And I noticed that the people who work there did not even glance up. We're standing there, we're all saying, it looks like it's three more minutes, two more minutes, and I glance over, and there are people trimming the yard, there are people going about their business. And they're just totally oblivious to this wonderful thing's going to happen in Yellowstone National Park. And you say, well, yeah, they see it every day. When we went to lunch and we were talking, I was talking to somebody, and they had these huge pictures on the wall of one of the servers in the restaurant. And I said, man, this must be an awesome place to work. They said, it's actually kind of boring. You know, every so many minutes, this geyser goes off. Everybody goes, ooh, ha, ooh, let me get a picture. Like there haven't been 10 billion pictures of Old Faithful already. You're going to get the picture nobody else got. And they're all jockeying for places and crawl, crawling across the place you're not supposed to get inside so they can stand in front of the geyser. And he said, you know, there, there's just no excitement in it for us. Is that us? God says, I'm Old Faithful. And I've poured my love on you day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. And you just don't even notice. You don't get it. But one day I'm going to take you home. I'm going to bring you home. To appropriate God's love into your life, you have to have those fresh eyes. You have to have a, a whole new way of thinking. Somebody said to me not long ago, they said, Pastor, how come you're not a fisherman? There are a whole lot of reasons why I'm not a fisherman. There are a whole lot of reasons, but I have to be honest with you. The number one reason that I'm not a fisherman is because somebody, when I was a little boy, I had a Sunday school teacher, John Turner, that took me fishing, and this is what he said, and I quote, to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. To catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. I don't want to think like a fish. That's why I'm not a fisherman. Why? Here's what I figured out. A fish's life is about a maximum gratification of appetite at the minimum expenditure of energy. In other words, it's all about food. You live every day for food. It's maximum appetite, minimum energy. A fish, I think, is stomach, eyes, and mouth. Fish are dumb. I mean, you have to be dumb. They throw a lure with hooks in it, and none of them say, hmm, Frank did that yesterday, and that didn't end up so well for him. How about Charlie last week? They swim in schools, but they never learn. I don't want to be like a fish. I don't want to think like a fish. Aren't you proud that you're smarter? Another elected official with brains and charisma and power and potential sees a woman has sexual infidelity, costs his marriage, his power, he resigns. Aren't we glad that we're smarter than fish? The Lord says, don't you get it? One day I'm going to come and take you home. Are you going to be ready to go home with me? 
Josh Groban has a Christmas CD out that we like to listen to. And Josh Groban, one of the songs is, uh, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. What's a killer for me is, as he's singing this, he has live people in the background that at the time that he recorded this, he recorded people from Afghanistan and Iraq who were, who were taping these messages for their family live in the background while he did this in the recording studio. He, he had the feed put in and you could hear them saying, well, I'm in Iraq today, but I'm hoping to be with you and I wish I could be there to see you. I know you're a proud little four-year-old opening your Christmas presents and I wish I could be home for Christmas. The Lord says, I'm coming to take you home. Alfred Edersheim is one of my favorite authors of all time. He lived in the 1800s. He lived many, many years ago. And, and it wasn't at, at Christmas. It was actually at Easter. He, was, he had written The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Alfred Edersheim was a Jewish scholar. He had written a history of Israel from the Old Testament that I think no one has ever duplicated, no one has, has ever bested. It's, it's one of the most miraculous uh, works on Old Testament history that I think you can find. And he was a Jewish scholar, and someone challenged him to look at Jesus the Messiah. And he started with the, with the birth of Jesus, and he went all the way to the cross, and he finished this work, The Life and Times. And it originally, the, the original title was going to be The life, of time, life and Times of One Who Claimed to Be the Messiah. And when he finished it, he put it to the, to the, the uh, publishing company, and he said, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And they said, Don't you mean the one who who wanted to be Messiah, and he said, no, he is the Messiah. He's my Messiah, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And the book went out, and, and there were just these huge ripples in the world because this Jewish scholar came to know Jesus Christ and Alfred Edersheim. It, it changed the way that people looked at him and, and all the research that he'd done, and when he saw all of the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus, he, they, they just couldn't believe it. And, and one year after it had been out several times, he, he did a third writing, or he, he did a third introduction because they were reprinting it for the third time, which was unheard of in that day. He was getting older. And his publisher said, I really need this before Easter. I really need you to finish this rewrite of it. And I want, he had, he had fine-tuned some things and he was writing another introduction at the very end of the third introduction or the fourth, whichever one it was. At the very end of this, he, he said, it's, it's late and I'm sitting in my office writing this and as I'm writing these words, I begin to hear and I realize that I've stayed up all night. It's Easter and the bells are ringing in the churches and they're, and they're ringing out that Jesus Christ is alive, that he rose from the dead and it's Easter. Oh, that I could be home. Oh, that I could experience an Easter, a resurrection with Jesus Christ. It's my heart's longing. It's what I've always dreamed. And it just stops. They found him two hours later, dead, fallen over with a pen still in hand, because that Easter, he went home. And I don't know when it's going to happen, but someday I'm going to spend Christmas at home, not in Reading, not in Amarillo, not in Kansas City, not in South Dakota. I mean home. How about you? Would you bow? Would you close your eyes? What an awesome God you are, Father. You've called us to come home. You've called us to be your children. 
and you're so faithful. And we ignore it. We don't understand it. We gloss over it. It becomes redundant and boring. And forgive us. So help us to accept the truth of who you are, what you've given us. Help us to confess those things in our life that we don't even know is sin, Father, just the selfishness, the things that we've hidden way down in a pocket. But more than anything, help us to live like any moment we could go home. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful truth that we find in the story of a a manger and a cross and a Savior and a God who hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came wanted to get across the story one more time to Abraham that you love so much that no sacrifice is too great. And even when Abraham blew it, immediately afterward you still fulfilled your promise to him. Thank you for forgiveness, for redemption, for restoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.